0: Brad, thanks for coming back to speak to us on 10% True. Yeah,
1: had a little trouble getting together here.
0: Well, you, you were in Hawaii and uh, we had another child, so I think we we both have pretty good excuses. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so we talked last time around about the experience that you had flying the F-111 in Southeast Asia and in Vietnam. Um format for the second interview is going to be to talk to you a little bit about your post-Vietnam career, <clears throat> whereas you've said the high-time F-111 pilot flew – a number of variants. So it'd be good to get your um thoughts on those uh variants and, and your experiences flying them and the differences. Um and then at the end we'll have an AMA and ask me anything, which is basically some questions that have come from the 10% true podcast community. Um I'll throw them out there to you and you can sort of bat them away or answer them depending on whether okay. whether or not you like them. So and just on that point for anybody who's listening, Uh, we do have a Discord channel. Um, So if you search 10% True on Discord, you'll be able to see uh, a range of options to ask my future interviewees any questions and so drop my Discord and and put your questions in so people like Brad can answer them for you. So, Brad, um, what did you do after Vietnam then?
1: Well, we went... uh, I came back to Thailand after... uh it was over and we went back and I was there for 10 more months while we were waiting to see what the North Vietnamese were going to do about the treaty uh, treaty violations. And then uh, after 10 months there, I went over to Upper Hayford and uh, spent uh, three and a half years at Upper Hayford in the 55th Spider Squadron. And became a, I was a junior guy there the whole time I got there. In fact, when I got there, I was, my order said Lieutenant. And uh, one of the guys, one of the squadron commanders met me and said, oh, you're a captain. And I said, yeah. I said, why? And he says, well, uh, we'd never had a Lieutenant flying F-111s in Europe, so we didn't know what we are going to do with you. <laughs> he said, you're a captain, so it's Okay. And I, I had made captain en route. So, uh,
0: did, did your experience, your, your combat experience, had th- did that have any bearing on the way you were treated? Um, I mean, w- was the squadron full of crusty old fighter guys who had been uh, I, and all? initially,
1: yeah, it was a lot of crusty old fighter guys because, you know, they had taken people out of other airplanes. And so there wasn't a lot of young guys. In fact, I was the junior guy for almost my whole tour. of The first time at uh, Upper Hayford, uh, and of course, all the when you're on alert, all the duties uh, went to the junior guy. <laughs> so for a little over three years, I was the junior guy every time I went on alert. <clears throat> but uh, yeah, Europe, of course, you were. We were sitting there waiting for the soviets to cross the border and eastern warsaw Pact. so uh all most of our flying was preparing for that and some of that we had reforger exercises every year which were basically what we what they wanted us to do in wartime and uh Then we usually had uh, Dawn Patrol out in the Med with the Navy, where we went out and flew against the Navy. And we did a lot of WTDs, weapons training detachments, to uh, either Turkey or Iran or Pakistan. And and, uh, I actually went to Iran in 77 for a weapons training detachment. Uh, I was on leave when we went to Turkey, so I missed that one. Uh, not Turkey, uh, excuse me, Pakistan. We didn't. I th- think we were kind of at odds with the Turks at that time, so we didn't really go there and do much. Uh, just kind of flew through Turkey on the way to Iran or Pakistan. And of course, Iran was friends at that time.
0: Uh, well, what did you um, What did you think that the Potential conflict with the the Soviet Union with Russia would look like then, and and what was your role there, David? <sighs> uh,
1: of course, we were we were sitting alert uh, a lot. Uh, I think uh, we would uh, basically long range strike, and that changed actually from the first time to the second time I was there. The first time I was there, we were striking targets a lot of targets in the Eastern Bloc as opposed to Russia itself. And uh, the second time I went back over, most of our targets were uh, deeper into Russia rather than Germany and East Germany and Poland and stuff like that. And of course, the whole setup was we were going to run across and Try and disrupt their them with uh, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, up, to, leading up to that, of course, we were going to just interdict. And that that mission changed from the uh, first time I was there to the second time I was there. And of course, the tactics changed. Initially, we were just going to be a lot of single ship interdiction. And later, they went to mass. Uh, attacks where you get four or five hundred airplanes going across one point in the border and then dispersed behind the border. And the theory is that, you know, the F-15s are going to go through and clear the air and the EFs are going to jam the radars and then the strikers are going to follow them through. Uh, the first time we went over, of course, limited radar in Germany uh, below 10,000 feet. A lot of interesting stories. Stuff we did, I guess the statute of limitations have passed and all that stuff now. (laughs) But uh, so the weather was bad, which was generally the case in Germany, uh, because Reforger was always in September. And you weren't supposed to go, weren't supposed to descend low level without radar contact or VFR. uh, VFR. So, uh, but Generally, you got to ten thousand feet, and you're still in the weather. So we we would just cancel and go VFR, even if we were in the weather. And we figured nobody else would be flying around there. with since there was no radar control, and we'd just do a train following, let down to a low level. And if we broke out, then we'd fly, continue a VFR. If we didn't break out, uh, probably abort and go home. Of course, you could have flown the mission low level, but. Uh, Those weren't quite the rules. Uh, I remember my very first Reforger sortie was with a major that I'd never flown with before. And we got recruited just before Reforger started, but we never got a chance to fly together. And we did that, we descended down in the weather, broke out with about a six or 700 foot ceiling and flew our mission. And at this time, they had us chasing tanks, which is not the 111 roll. Normal roll. Uh, it's kind of a funny thing. In 74, they were having an air power demonstration in Germany. The weather was awful as usual. So they canceled everybody but the 111s. And there was a tank. Was a target and they were dropping off a beacon. I don't know if you're familiar with beacon bombing, but basically they they would set a beacon up, give you range and bearing from the beacon to the target. We would set that offset. We're all analog at this point. And uh, then you'd aim on the beacon and hopefully hit whatever target they set up for you. No GPS, of course. And anyway, the 111 came through, dropped a single, bomb and the, on this tank and we were the only ones dropping because of the weather and uh hit the, went the bom- bomb actually went into the turret of the tank oh. <laughs> and of course the generals go hey these guys can carry 24 bombs they can kill 24 tanks <laughs> so for a few years we were doing a lot of tank chasing which is not our Best mission.
0: Anyway, uh, that, that. Yeah, just just on cool. that. So, can I can I take you back then to that to that, yeah. to that uh, sort of difference between the first time you arrived at Tapae and the second time you went there? So the targets were were different, um, and you were going to go as a mass formation rather than singletons. Um, did you did you could you practice for that? Did you and the RAF and the Canadians and uh, the, the the French? Well, I don't know if the French were actually part of it. Were they?
1: No, they weren't. uh, Yeah, we used to, we would attack the wash area with 450 to 550 airplanes and they'd have uh, the RAF trying to defend England. You would do that? Yeah, it was pretty interesting with that many airplanes going through the sky. Of course, one of the problems was the A-10s. They had to start early. (laughs) But yeah, you'd go flying in there and it'd be all different altitudes and You'd have tornadoes and F-4s and, uh, of course, uh, your trainer. I'm trying to think of what. Uh, Hawks, yeah. The Hawks, would. their backup mission was to uh, air defense. They'd put a couple of AIM-9s on them and they would be thrown into the mix too. So you had airplanes going at both ways. It was a pretty exciting time. Uh, we, bro- we worked up to that. We started out flying like uh, – 16 111s and a bunch of other airplanes and then we pretty soon we were flying whole groups you know the f-15s and the ef leading the charge and the rest of us on f-16s a-10s f-111s and running in and uh, it was uh actually a pretty viable attack plan because there once you got past or you know the forward line of the battle area there wasn't a lot of uh, defenses till you got to the target area. So if we could overwhelm the defenses in one section of the battle line, it was a uh, pretty good uh, chance that quite a few guys would make it through. Would you Instead have been back? Uh, I think they worried, we worried more about the Army than we did about the Soviets because they had hawks and stuff.
0: Uh, the surface uh, to a missile hawk.
1: Yeah. yeah. And uh, the army always said that they were going to shoot anybody coming down at them and sort them out on the ground. <laughs> so we worried a little. <laughs> we worried a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh,
0: and so, so was that then still uh, the t- a tactical nuclear role? So you you were all going to go across, and then whatever whoever managed to survive, they're going to drop their nukes on whatever the the target Well, was. actually, actually, that was kind of conventional plan. Okay
1: that was that wasn't a nuclear plan at all and uh we would we would be we normally would carry like uh, 12 market a2s low level uh you could carry 8 cbu low level uh, cbu would had a huge drag factor on it so uh you could carry Mark 84s, but we didn't have any retarded ones those days. They got them retarded now. And uh, with the, uh, we got rid of the Mark 82 snake eyes and they went to the little parachutes on the back of them. They were a lot more reliable. You could drop them faster. In Vietnam, that was the big limitation was the snake eyes. You couldn't go too fast with them. So they wanted something where you could utilize your speed low level to
0: uh survive um so, so that would have been the blutes blutes yes party, retired uh, ones, right? yeah uh, and would you um would you be using the same tactics as you did in southeast asia and would you be auto tf um yeah
1: we'd be auto tf single ship uh if it was daytime which is possible they could have sent us in the daytime because they're not going to wait around for us to get attacked at the field then we'd be maybe running in as. Uh, two or four ship uh, that's what we usually plan four ships in the second initially uh, over there in like seventy-five seventy-eight when I was there we were planning all single ships mostly and uh, that was uh, I don't know if that was more survivable or not we were we had the good camouflage for Europe theater those camouflage schemes didn't work quite as well over the desert, of course. Being dark, they were we were hard to see. I've passed under many a formation. F four is looking for us, and they never saw us. The F fifteen E, they might have been able to keep up with us. The F fifteen, they didn't like to go fast low because it was low wing loading and bounced them around pretty heavily. The E had electronic flight controls to help compensate for that. Uh, F sixteen. They Could out accelerate us, maybe not the F model, but like A and the E and the D, they could out accelerate you. Uh, that was the big problem with the 111. We had a high top speed, but it took a while to get there. If you, you know, you started out 500 knots or something, you wanted to get to 750 or something.
0: What, uh, what about the Russian gear then? What, what were you concerned about with regards to them? Uh, mostly, uh.
1: Sa sixes in those days. Sa twos were, you know, uh, down a thousand feet mostly. Uh, especially the type of terrain we're at. Uh, the Sa threes were another medium altitude mostly missile. Uh, but the Sa sixes, of course, you've probably seen the picture of the A four Israeli A four getting hit by a missile with these one wingtip in the sand different type of terrain. Uh, Soviet fighters, I, as long as you stayed low and fast, they probably couldn't catch you. They didn't have the missiles in those days to do that. Uh, if, you were, if you had to come up, then there would be a threat probably. Uh, probably could outrun them even then as long as you uh, fuel was a consideration. Uh, we we carried more fuel than anybody. We could go a long, long time.
0: Do you, do you remember how much you had? Do you remember how much usable fuel?
1: Yeah, it was, there was 33,000 pounds of fuel. And minimum of fuel was uh, 3,000, and emergency fuel was 1,500 pounds. So, uh, like we had, on a regular mission, we usually tried to land with... Uh, you get back to the pattern with five thousand pounds. Yeah. Of course if you were that was a VFR, if it was IMR IFR, you gotta get in the bird fuel and stuff in there.
0: So you you talked to, uh, about uh radar directed um triple A I think in in the in the first interview <laughs> we talked about and
1: um yeah that that yeah. was a concern twenty three four especially uh Of course, anybody, if you flew over them, had a shot at you in the daytime, especially. Nighttime, they tended to shoot behind you because they're sound shooting. If they get a glimpse of you, they're shooting at you. It takes time for the bullets to get there. We had very few people, even most of the, I think all of the hits we took were, uh, the guys that came back were uh, AK-47 rounds. Oh, so, you know, when they they just have everybody run out and shoot up in the air. It's a fairly effective tactic if you you know, if they know about where you're at.
0: Um, did did you have a good um for the you know, for the folder gap scenario or the you know, sort of the, the European scenario, did you have a good electronic warfare suite? Um did you carry a jammer? Um, you know, could you could you identify who was looking at you? Um I talked to Marco yeah. McCaffrey, um, uh, you, who you know. I think you flew with him. Um, and I asked him about this sort of, you know, the little sensor that was up in the fin that was supposed to, I think, give some kind of IR indication as to somebody coming behind. Yeah. You. He said it never worked. Um,
1: it never did. No, it was. It. Sun did too much damage to it. Plus, we didn't help it any the way we flew. <laughs> if, if You flew close formation, you said it's the way we flew it, it was always up in the exhaust, so you're burning them out. Uh, but it never seemed to work, uh, right. How, how was, uh, we didn't.
0: How, how was it supposed to work? Did it show something on the RWR? Or, or... Uh,
1: yeah, it would uh, you know, now that I think about it, I'm trying to remember how it did work. I think it gave us an IR detect. Yeah, like, you know, looking for a missile launch or something like that. We never relied on it or used it, really. So it's hard to say much about what it was supposed to do 30 or 40 or 50 years later. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah it, it, we just never really figured it worked, so we didn't pay much attention to it.
0: Um uh, and you carried an external jamming pod, so would, would yeah, that have, would that have we, been effective we, against something like the SA6? do You think?
1: Uh, no, that wasn't really effective against that. It was, it was just strictly a noise jammer. The one we carried in Vietnam, we had deception, low, medium, and high deception jammers. I think we talked about those last time a little bit. Uh, the high jammer was very good against the Big 21, and the uh, Low would detect SA two, but we felt it was more of a uh, gave away more than it helped. So most people didn't ever turn it on. They had it on stand, you uh, know, to receive but not transmit. And uh, we kept the high band of the ninety four on for the MiG twenty ones. And we had really nothing against the ZSU-23-4 in those days, which is a J-band radar, as I recall. And uh, we did carry uh, later, that first one we carried was an ALQ-87, which was strictly a noise jammer. And there was lots of warnings, don't turn on it, and, and your deception, ge- deception jammers at the same time. And basically, all I did was give you a set of crosshairs. There's a noise, put out a you know, a spike that went out there and blocked all the stuff around you. And the, so you had kind of a finger pointing at you in general direction. The deception jamming put false targets out. But you had a good operator. You can't put targets out. Uh behind you. So you got the leading edge of the deception that gives you a crosshair thing. And so you didn't want both of them on at the same time. because They were giving them a general area to look for you at. Later we went to the 190, 119 pod, which had programs for a lot of the radars that we didn't have in the airplane. And the reason they went to external jammer rather than update what we had was cost. It was a lot easier to make pods for the whole fleet as opposed to go to the 111 and try to give us a jammer that would work and update all the time. To put the ALQ87 on the rear station we had to change the gear door because it would uh, it would go back and hit where the pod was. I don't know if we talked about that last time or not, but they put one that basically bolted to the gear and it left a little gap a couple inches on the bottom of the airplane, but it never seemed to affect performance or anything because it wasn't big enough the way it was bolted on to make the complete seal. Uh, The 119 was Pretty good. They were going to the 131 pod when I left. I think we had those for a year or two. It was just an improved jammer. I tell you, I don't remember any of the details of those things anymore.
0: Uh. <clears throat> did Did you think then going up against the Russians? Did you think that any just that that stuff was going to help? I mean, were you going to you were reliant more on sort of um, being stealthy, perhaps you know, going undetected rather than turning on these transmissors
1: yeah, we, we kind of felt like uh, like the MiG-21 program was helpful. Uh, the ZSU-23-4 program they came up with, they kind of recommended we didn't use it because it increased the PK of the radar, the guns. That's <laughs> what <laughs> so they found out testing it. And it caused the radar to jitter. So it became more of a shotgun effect <laughs> in the general direction. <laughs> All
0: right.
1: So that didn't that didn't work too well. Uh, we didn't. So a lot of the raid missiles at that time, other than the SA six, we didn't really worry about. Uh, so uh, I'm pretty sure we had a program against SA six. We really started working more on avoiding the radars. We had some pretty awesome programs they came up with for root planning. That was that was late in my career at Upper Hayford. They you know, we'd put our program in and they could tell you where the Russians were gonna see us. So and for how long they were gonna see us. And so we started, you know, planting our roots and then we'd put it in the computer. And it would show us where they could see us and where they couldn't see us. And then you could modify your route a little cool. so that they could see uh, the least amount of time. That was, that was probably the best thing. Uh, one of the things that really helped our mission plan and planning, planning uh, other than just avoiding stuff was uh, it helped our manpower was color color printers yeah, that sounds like a small thing but we could draw we could have one guy signed to maps and he could draw a map like a four ship and he could print off three copies or four copies and eight copies whatever and uh, then everybody would have their own map copy for the route Uh of course, one of the things I always worried, commanders, was he sent us f on eleven out single ship. Where do we look? Hmm. So we started having to leave our flight plans in Vietnam behind, so that they would know where we were going that night, how we were
0: getting there. Uh, <coughs> what about the what about the EFs then? So so uh, you know again, sort of back to that. You know, European scenario. Were they going to? You, you said they were going to come in and jam, but were we expecting them to be particularly effective? Um, I don't really know anything about their jamming capability, but were they sort of only for a small area, or were they sort of wide area jamming? What were they going to do?
1: Uh, they could. They were mostly wide area, but they could jam specific stuff. As far as I know, uh, we were. They were pretty good, actually, and the fact. The British, when they retired them, were pretty upset because that was the one airplane that could go and keep up with the strike package. When they went to the EA-6s instead, uh, it limited the speed of the strike packages. So if you wanted to keep the strike package speed up, you had to leave them back to uh, jam from a distance. And I think the reason they did that was uh, the EFs, they took away all the offensive capability from them, thinking we don't want them to get in there and try and fight. We want them to jam, so let's take away that capability. And they took all the wiring out, and then they realized after they used them for a while, it would be nice if they could launch a strike out there and that's what the EA, EA6s could do they could launch missiles to take radars out and unfortunately they they were not thinking in that direction when they built the EF so it ended up it was too expensive to put that capability in when they already had it
0: in the EA6 Speaking of targeting things, then, um, you you said tanks became the thing you were going to go after. It wasn't very
1: realistic. No? (laughs) Uh,
0: Could could you find them on radar? Did you have a ground-moving target indicator or ground-moving target? No, we
1: we didn't. Uh, We didn't have any of that. Uh, That's why it was tough, because trying to find a tank at 500 knots in a forested area, it's pretty, pretty tough. I was going to tell you about that first mission when we got down low level we were we were had to stay five hundred feet or less to stay below the clouds and uh, we were in southern West Germany on the over in the border area and uh, so I was yanking and banking around the between the hills. we finally found the tanks. After numerous passes, which wouldn't be realistic, you people be shooting the heck out of you. Yeah, and uh, the weather was bad. Like I say, the visibility was poor, and uh, we were we were re- really having to pay attention to where we were flying, keep keep from hitting stuff. Yeah, the funny part about that whole sortie when I when I'm climbing out, I'm flying. With, remember, I'm flying with a guy I haven't flown with before. And uh, we we finally get above 10,000 feet, and we got radar control. And then we'd been in the weather since 500 until we got up, like, above 20,000 feet. And after we got into radar control, he says, before I uh, say what I want to say, he says, I want to tell you my background. He says, I started out flying in uh, DC-6s in the back. And we were flying along the Soviet border, collecting radar. Uh, transmissions, he says. And then I went to uh, HC one thirties out of Bentwaters, and we flew over the water all the time. He says. Then I went to pilot training as a safety officer, and I flew in the right seat of a T thirty-seven once four hours a month. He says, Then I came to one hundred and eleven, uh, and of course, he they check out at uh, Mountain Home in the good weather. Actually, in that time, there might have been, there were Nellis, really good weather. <laughs> and uh, he comes over to Europe, and he's flying, he gets checked out, and the weather was pretty good. And then he's flying with me in his first operational sortie after getting checked out. And <laughs> we're flying reforger sortie. And he goes, I just wanted to say, that was the first time I've ever been on an airplane looking up at the ground. so you know we were more than 90 degrees of bank several times coming around those hills we're always turning right
0: (laughs) so he was closest to
1: it yeah (laughs) but he didn't say a thing and he hung in there and he actually turned out to be a very good fighter gator so uh, we had a lot of fun together
0: there's there's a, a pretty good interview. There's another um, air crew interview channel called air crew interview. Um, and, and Jeff Gwynn, I don't know if you ever came across him. him. I know Jeff yeah. real well. So, yeah. So, so Mike and, and he did a great interview. So if anyone's watching that after you've watched the interview here with Brad, go and watch that interview with Jeff. But Jeff talks a little bit about a phenomenon where with the wings swept all the way back, if you got inverted, you couldn't recover. I think he said a couple of guys – I th- I'm doing this from memory. This is I, I watched the interview you know, a year or two ago. And he said, uh, "You know, it would catch you out, and it, something would happen once you got to that point. You just didn't. The airplane would wouldn't sort of roll up right again, or something like that." Do, do you remember anything about that?
1: Uh, well, you lost a lot of your roll control. I know with the wings back uh, because you got past forty-eight degrees. I think and your spoilers were all locked out. You got to remember you had no ailerons in the one eleven. And all you had was differential stab. So I suppose I never ran into that phenomenon where I had trouble rolling out. That would be something you do low level, I guess.
0: Well, that uh, that that was really going to be my question was was whether or not it was um, you know very well suited to that auto TF. Um, but but was it well suited to what you were just describing, yanking and banking? And um... yeah, it, it flew good. Like it was a Cadillac down low. Uh, uh, I, lo- I
1: love flying down low. My favorite thing to do, really, that and dive bombing. Uh, I, I loved uh, getting in and racing around the mesas and stuff out in uh, eastern New Mexico and. Uh, it it handled really well low level and we didn't the amount of times I was at seventy two degrees very few most you know, you wanted to be supersonic when you're doing that uh,
0: and for anybody who's not not doesn't doesn't know what that means that's seventy two degrees of wing sweep, which is yeah. which is the furthest back the wings will go
1: yeah seventy two and a half actually, but uh yeah, you put the wings all the way back uh that was the least drag on the airplane. Uh, There was no speed limit, just a temperature limit. I guess I maybe told you that before. Uh, Had a countdown timer from 300 seconds. Uh, Once you exceeded a certain temperature, I forget it was was centigrade. Uh, I forget there's a maximum temperature and once you exceeded a a lower temperature, it would start counting down and you didn't have to slow down until that he had to get back below that temperature by the time the 300 seconds was up. And uh, they apparently did some damage to an F model because they didn't adhere to that, but it, you know, scorched the airplane. There was no titanium on them like there was on the uh, SR 71 and stuff. So it was uh speed limits. You know, we, we've had a, chat going with a bunch of us and the guys were talking about the fastest they went low level and i know guys were saying they went in an a model clean 972 and stuff like that uh i know i've talked to guys that have been over a thousand knots in the f model low level c level uh tell you the truth i don't ever remember looking to see how fast i was going uh we can go low level and uh over land you couldn't do it very many places in the u.s after about 76 they started uh, even above 30,000 feet they kind of backed that off separate certain areas because of the sonic boom Uh, uk was one of the few places where you can go supersonic uh, on a regular sortie that was out over the water uh, you get over the North Sea as long as you were 10 miles from shore and uh, diverging or parallel to the coast, you can go supersonic. Uh, I had somebody that had never been a low-level supersonic once in a while. I'd take them and go out over the coast. We were out of things to do and do a little supersonic run out there. Of course, you had to make sure you didn't run over your fishing boats or anything.
0: So, so, so all this, this talk of um, speed and uh interesting acceleration i'd never heard anybody say it was it was slow to accelerate you know i guess people they do sort of fixate on just how fast it goes but so, so combining that then with um you know the earlier conversation we were having about threats and, and 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 russian aircraft did you get an opportunity to fly against the red Eagles? did you get an opportunity to to drag no, a race uh-huh. against the mig 23
1: it was pretty pretty restrictive of who who flew against the russian airplanes uh. I think a lot of the weapons guys, weapons guys did that when they went through training and uh of course they tested all the airplanes uh, but we weren't even supposed to know what they had really hmm. uh later you, you of course you got when they started declassifying it, we found out they had floggers, and we pretty well we pretty well knew but nobody can really not supposed to tell you. Was, was no, we, lo- we lost some general flying a flogger, uh, low level. In fact, I'm thinking the 70s or late 70s, or early 80s, I think, somewhere in there.
0: Yeah, it was that was Bobby Bond. Um, that was uh, that was and that was high altitude. I think that was a, a, a Mark 2.3 or something run. Could be, I don't remember now. No. I just remember we lost him. But did you know, I mean, did you, did you have in your, um, you know, sort of book of, uh, adversary aircraft? Did you have the EM diagrams for the big 23? You know, did you think, well, if one of those comes along and we end up getting into a race, you know, he's, he's trying to converge on our six, whatever we could outrun him or we couldn't, or what was, what was your game plan going to be?
1: That's a good question. I don't think we thought too much about that. To tell you the truth. Uh, He'd have to get guns on you, so because I don't think they had a missile that would go down there. Uh, that would be the biggest thing. is you're trying to out accelerate him, but he's probably going to accelerate you with that big engine yet. And uh, that was the MiG twenty three. The MiG twenty seven, I think, was a ground attack, if I recall right. Hmm. Variant. Uh, I do know that uh, we were we were told that they couldn't. They couldn't pull G and, and sweep their wings. Uh, I remember the West Germans telling us that was bullshit. Excuse me, I have said <laughs> that's that. okay. That's okay.
0: It's an adult channel. You're allowed to, you're allowed to use adult language. That's fine.
1: Because uh, they said that they were they would fight the East Germans over the Baltic once in a while. Just and uh, he said they were moving their wings while they were pulling G's. So really. Uh, I guess that was probably was a design designer saying don't sweep the wings and pull Gs the but they did it anyway. Yeah. Uh, never never had a chance to fly up against one. have been kind of interesting.
0: What what about then um Western Western aircraft that you were training with or against. I mean, what did you make of things like the Tornado, the the Interdictor Strike, the IDS Tornado?
1: Um, tornado had limited range. Best thing to do would run him out of fuel. Uh, but they were a good airplane. Uh, I know. I got a. I got. where well, actually the Tornado was coming into the inventory, about ready to come into the inventory. Some one of their two generals for having an argument at NATO, and uh, I had to figure out a bunch of statistics for them about range and speeds. And and uh, the, the British or German, I think it was a German general, was saying the tornado could do everything the 111 could do, and uh. So I gave him all the data, and he gave it to the Germans, and the Germans refused to give the data for the tornadoes to the Americans. (laughs) Because it obviously didn't have the range. Uh, I never tried to run with one. Uh, I did, I get to get jumped by, uh, uh, not a tornado, F4, uh, ones you bought from the Navy, it's the Navy J model. Mm-hmm. He jumped jumped me coming off Donanook Range one night, one day, and uh, I don't know you know where Donanook is. Yeah, yeah, okay. Just mm-hmm. uh, and I think I surprised him because we got we were out turning him. Of course, they were not a slatted airplane; they were hard wing F four. But he caught me at my best, and not his best airspeed. He probably couldn't figure out why he couldn't turn with me, <laughs> what, so what, but he could mean? definitely definitely accelerate me. Because uh, when I started getting the advantage, he went straight up and left me. Oh, really? And then he tried to rejoin the fight, and I got him again.
0: So he left and went home. So, so, what was that? then? I mean, you, you don't really think of the f 111 as a turning aircraft, um, what, what? It,
1: we we couldn't turn very long that's it <laughs> but a lot of but he caught me going really fast and of course i had I had g available, and they like to turn a little slower get their best turn speed and I was pretty light, I don't know what his fuel state was, but it kind of surprised me actually when I turned with him The flat of d you couldn't even think about turning with uh f4 but uh, the d model you could stay with him sometimes for a little bit he had he had better thrust to weight ratio though and lower wing loading but uh I even chased a hawk away a couple of times <laughs> he, he attacked me out in a Wales training area and uh I I would have thought he would have been able to jump on r6 to stay there but he couldn't so he left
0: so, so that if you think about for anybody not not you because you flew it but for anybody who's listening if you think about the the f111 sort of quite heavily framed canopy you've got somebody in the right hand seat the visibility backwards yeah. is probably not that great um
1: not that great we had mirrors but still wasn't that great you had a big dead spot back there
0: so, so it's so, definitely a case of lose sight, lose the fight in the F 111. Yeah,
1: yeah, you, you could say that. It'd probably be a good idea, good thing. Uh, I always took guys into the sun if I had a chance, and uh, then you could negative G out, roll out, and you could quite often get behind them then because mm. they're looking for you when you go into the sun come out the other side and you, you don't. Yeah. It confuses them for a little bit of time.
0: Did, did you so, have, um, as a fighter pilot then, I mean, was there a part of you that, that felt that you had to stay sharp in the art of basic fighter maneuvers? Uh, did you feel like actually your, realistically, what you were going to do is get low and, and fast to, to get away from we
1: Usually you? we were, we were going to get out of the fight as quick as we could and go fast you're not going to turn very long with anybody,
0: uh, did, did, did this? The, uh, this I, I read about these sort of plans to to fly low and drop a bomb in someone's face. Was that realistic?
1: Uh, actually, that that was a tactic we're, that the Israelis used too. Uh, drop a balloon out, keep get them low, and drop a balloon out and. You may not get them, but you can uh, at least distract them long enough maybe to get away. I hadn't thought about that tactic in a lot of times, but we did talk
0: about that. Hmm. An, an aggressive, presumably if you were, for some reason, caught at medium altitude, I mean, an aggressive combat descent on, onto auto-TF, would that also have been a, a good tactic to use or would you have been quite predictable?
1: Uh, I. I'd, if I was if it was daytime, I, I wouldn't even opt get the TF on it. Take too much time. I'd just put the nose down and go for it, because <laughs> uh, you know it takes time to switch those on and let go of the airplane, and let it go down. You can go down faster because uh, it's limited to uh, it was limited to like ten or twelve degrees going down. Yeah, you had to use a lot more G than the 3G pullout if you were doing that manually.
0: What was your G limit?
1: 7.33. And that was fully loaded. So they actually went out, and uh, the test pilots went out and were pulling 9Gs, a light load. That was assumed, always assumed you were fully loaded. So but you're not going to hold 7.33 Gs very long. It's going to be like somebody reached out and grabbed you speed-wise pulling that
0: many Gs. There was a question I was, I was going to ask, um, which sort, sort of relates to performance, but it's not really. Um, but when, uh, when the F-111 takes off and the gear comes up, that big door under the main landing gear swings forward, looks like it's at yeah. about ninety degrees. Do you get yeah. a sudden deceleration when that thing's going out into the airflow like that?
1: No, not really. It might make a difference if you were single engine. But it didn't I don't recall any big sleep it looks like it would though, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it didn't did ex did decelerate when you did that. it still accelerated
0: so, so, did the airplane have any real sort of foibles, anything that would really bite you if you weren't paying attention or that was just you had to contend with and was irritating?
1: Uh, not really. Initially, we lost a few airplanes because it didn't have any stall warning. Uh, you know, the airplane didn't really traditional stalls. Yaw diverged, because a lot of the lift came, 50% of the lift came from the fuselage, like the F-14, the F-15, and uh, F-18. So you'd be turning or pulling, and all of a sudden the thing would want to leave controlled flight. But yaw diverging. Uh, Lost a few airplanes. To that and initially they had a i think the first thing they did was put a rudder pedal shaker in but guys who lost the airplane said never felt them
0: uh so so this was something that would vibrate the pedals just tell you to, yeah. to get your feet off of them or, no i was or just telling you, you
1: just to get your attention okay that you were uh and then they added a light stall warning light and they you know they just kept adding stuff trying to give you more clues that you're approaching. Uh, Stall warning horn. They changed that halfway through my career. They went to SIS, stall inhibitor system, which could be defeated. Uh, It was 14 degrees plus pitch rate. Uh, Initially, it didn't come on until you got to 18. It was just a and the pedal shakers, I think, came on at 18 initially, and then, the, and the when they added the light, that light would come on at 18, and uh, then the stall inhibitor. They started looking at pitch rate as well as your actual angle of attack. It was true wing angle of attack. It wasn't the units of angle of attack like their forehead. And I talked to guy, test pilots that tested the airplane. They said it would usually depart at 25. It could be lower uh, if you were an unstable air or you were being rough on the airplane. I've seen 22 uh, few times and it felt fine. Uh, some I was. We I always was taught that in the break you went 16 to 18 alpha which is a pretty tight break, you know, coming into land. And uh, then later they went to 10 to 12. was a recommended, but I always stayed with the 16 to 18. Usually you pulled until you got the horn and then just kind of kept it there. Uh, using a little top rudder to keep the nose from falling.
0: Did your stand, and, standard valve guys not pick you up on that?
1: Well, you didn't necessarily... Want to do that with a guy the evaluating you, <laughs> but once you got to a certain point in your career, they kind of knew what it was, you know. But the funny thing about that was, I was at uh, Canon and I was flying with a instructor wizard who I'd never flown with before, but he had been in been we'd known each other for a long time, and I did the old pull in the horn standard thing and uh we get on the ground he says i almost ejected this and i said what do you mean you almost ejected this he said well you were out of control and i said what do you mean i was out of control you had the stall warning horn on i said yeah but what do you mean i was out of control Well, if you if you got the stall warning horn you're out of control i said no you well, got a long ways to go for you out of control and the stall warning horn on he had never heard the stall warning horn before. And I'm like, geez, you know, obviously never flown with me before. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's – I kind of like the 18 – I like the SIS system, but I kind of like – I like the stall inhibitor system, but I, the pitch rate thing was – that was kind of a nuisance I didn't like.
0: So is it, what uh, was it, it, with, is it? Is it a stick pusher or something like that? Is it that... –
1: it actually, in the one initial one eleven setup, that was one of the problems there was no stick pressure and stick position gave you g okay. so, so it constant. sensed a, a position and it gave you a g to correspond with that but that stick feel did not change that's one thing that's one thing that changed with sis tall inhibitor system it started adding feel as you got up to the Started adding resistance as you got into this stall warning area. Mm. Uh, another visual clue that was good. Uh, I got to where I could feel what the airplane was doing. Uh, a lot of guys never could, but you know, I'd be flying the airplane and and you go, something's wrong because I should be feeling, I should be hearing the horn going off, and I'm not. You look down, you're pulling 18 degrees angle of attack or more, and the stall warning system has died on you. But I always got the, I always got the. Of course, I had so many hours in it; it's like I was part of it. I could always kind of feel the way the airplane felt what we were doing. So, you know, if I all of a sudden I felt, didn't feel right, I can look inside and say, oh, yeah, we're not very close to being so, Like, come off back pressure.
0: That's, that's that's sort of an interesting point, isn't it? Around, you know, you, you're the high-time guy, more than, more than 5,000 hours in the airplane. Um the, the community says, "Well, we, we'll do things one way," and then you've got some experience, and you'll do, you you do it a slightly different way, or the way that it, it was originally. Where is the balance then? Well, how do you strike the balance between becoming complacent and and truly being um, in command of the airplane um, and having that kind of um, in, not not innate because you've built it over time, but that kind of instinctive um, understanding of what it should be doing, what it should be telling you?
1: Uh, I would generally, if I was going to do something that was out of the ordinary and I hadn't flown with somebody or a low-time guy, I would tell them what I was going to do. Sometimes it made them nervous anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And there were some things that were procedure that were actually, I thought, dangerous, like no-flap approaches. You know, they always wanted you to fly clean wing if you could get it. A lot of times you couldn't get the flaps down, but you get the slats down. And, and the stall margin was immensely greater with the slats down than it was with the flaps down. The speed went up to get the same angle of attack. However, GD recommended. That you fly a higher angle of attack with the slats down on a no flap approach. Some guys really didn't like it when you did that, even though you told them what you were going to do. But I never had hot brakes doing that. Uh, They'd always come to you. Got to go to the hot brake area because you had a no flap. Okay, you go in there and they go, "Sir, your brakes aren't hot." I know. Why are you here? (laughs) (laughs) Because they say I have to. And the other thing was, people didn't brake right. Braking technique was... uh, 111, when you were ready to brake, you wanted to brake until you were at a taxi speed. And even if you were fast, like a no-flap, it wouldn't heat the brakes up. So when it was time to put the brakes on, you got on them and you kept on them until you got the taxi speed. And then they... Normally, I I'd, I'd never had them get hot. Hmm. Somebody told me that right at the beginning. It might have been one of the test pilots that came through and briefed us. That always stuck with me.
0: So, so, so you would ever break the aircraft or not? Uh, not much. It didn't help a whole lot,
1: okay. especially clean. But we do it a little bit just for fun. And, of course, guys were always getting the tail bumper when they did that too much. Hmm. Uh, yeah, you can leave it up a little bit, especially on a normal landing. Uh, if you did it and you're a little fast, it, no flap especially, it might try to get airborne again because um, you got a lot of speed on. Uh, we airbraked a little bit. They wanted you to kind of plant it. I never did like that unless I had shot topping distance with a problem because you do lose a little, few knots. When you plant it as like a navy guy instead of a landing like a normal airplane.
0: What, what were the tolerances for the undercarriage then? Because I mean that that goes back to what you—the very first thing we talked about. Um, after I sort of meandered around, you know, sort of how I wanted the interview to go, and I said, um, you know, we'll talk about Vietnam, and then I said, actually, no, let's talk about the, the roots of the airplane. Was the navy the navy roots? So, so you yeah. could plant it because it was designed to be planted.
1: Yeah, it was designed to be planted. And you did lose a little airspeed when you did that. Uh, you know, we're landing on eight to 13,000 foot runways, so wasn't necessarily necessary, should I say.
0: Sounds like now, fun. You had an emer-
1: yeah, <laughs> you had an emergency. You definitely would like to lose those few extra knots of airspeed. Uh Single engine, that was another thing I won't say I didn't follow procedure, but i the only time you had to be on speed for a single engine was touchdown. We lost a couple of airplanes due to guys getting slow and then not being able to light the afterburner on the other good engine. So I always kept my speed up because the only time you had to be on speed was for touchdown and uh i tried to teach guys that didn't have to, they put the gear down and everything just like it was a normal landing well I'd, i started, had to shoot an instrument approach for a single engine i'd just tell them once you start down the glide slope and you're stabilized your speed's good throw the gear down and uh we get we we'd get too much into the habit of doing everything the same every time and then they would get in trouble you know You'd be cruising along, put the gear down at normal time, you're getting on speed, and then you get a little slow. Now you don't have the extra thrust from the other engine to help you get back on speed. So you either have to light the afterburner or you have to lose altitude. And you may not be able to recover with a one engine of military power. That's so I always kept it fast that way. Wasn't really against procedure, but it was kind of against. Wait, most people flew the airplane.
0: What was that? What was that TF thirty like? On the engine,
1: uh, we had the P three and the A and the E. And the P three was fairly reliable, actually. Uh, I had compressor stalls. I've lost a few, but uh, I used to tell everybody I had a lot of single engine fighter time. Unfortunately, it was in a two engine fighter. <laughs> The D-models engines were a little more sensitive. Uh, didn't like restarting it. Didn't like getting uh, going into afterburner at higher altitudes. Uh, like getting on the tanker and, you know, you're at twenty seven to 29,000 feet, which was really a bad altitude for us for, military power on the tanker. So you'd end up lighting one afterburner. You're supposed to pull back to pre-contact position, light the burner, and then come back in and use the the one that's not an afterburner to modulate your thrust. Uh, I usually just started to went. I never lost one on a tanker. I had a wingman lose one on a tanker when he went to afterburner. He was doing... He was the lead. I would, I shouldn't say wingman. He was the lead, actually, and uh, we had gotten up uh, to twenty nine thousand feet because we were crossing the Pacific and we couldn't find any clear air. And we ended up. Uh, he ended up on the boom first, and uh, as he got more gas, he was having trouble staying with them Else. He was a colonel test pilot, which should have known better. He said, hey, can you slow down? I can't keep up with you. Well, uh, that was exactly the wrong thing to do. I'm like, no. The guy goes back to like 270, and then he probably has to light the afterburner, and he pressure stalls. He fell down to like 13,000 feet before he had to relight. So the rest of us all got our fuel real quick. First thing I did was tell him to go to 310. (laughs) Because uh, takes more power to go slower when you get behind the power curve. Hmm. And refueling, you're always behind the power curve. So uh, 300 was normal refueling speed. And 310, 315 is about all they can give you, KC-135. Go ahead. I'm sorry, I interrupted. No,
0: it's okay. I, I was just curious on on, on the the going slower bit. Um, presumably, that's is, is that about higher angle of attack, uh, more drag, more disturbed airflow going into the engine inlet. Uh,
1: yeah, that's that's. I think that's what it was. In the, for some reason, the D model was real sensitive to that. Uh, it, it would disturb the airflow. You light the afterburner, and it would disturb the flow, and they would compressor stall occasionally. I'd had it done, but never when I was in a critical mode of flight.
0: Uh, did, did, did you have any um, sort of particularly unpleasant experiences in the airplane?
1: Oh, what do you mean by that? I guess. <laughs> did it, did
0: it, were, there, were there times where it really scared you? Um, were there times where you got back and thought, I'm lucky to still be, still be here?
1: Oh, you know, my daughter was saying, I used to always worry about you when you are flying. In combat and stuff. And I said, you know, I, I had more actual close calls in peacetime than I ever had in combat. And usually uh, they happened so quickly that it was over before we had a chance to get scared. Uh, I don't know, remember we had a controller strike in the U.S. back in the 80s. And so we were asked not to fly IFR In fact, I was the first sortie of the day. The first day they told us we're going to fly VFR everywhere. So I taxied out and they called for takeoff number one VFR. The tower's like, "Uh, one can't take off VFR. I said, yes, we can. (laughs) And and I was one of the few guys that had even done it before because at Nellis, when I first got there, that's all we did was taxi out, take off under visual flight rules. Uh, Anyway, I was... We were we were Dick Brown. I don't know if you know you know who Dick Brown is. Yeah, yeah. downtown Brown. Well, Dick and I were uh, in the five twenty third, and we were going to do a live ordnance drop at uh, Army base up in Oklahoma, Fort Sill, and it was in support of uh, their graduation exercise for their forward air controllers. They would direct you to a target. Anyway, uh, we were took off with our departure control. And she had us at 15, we flew, normally flew close formation until we got stabilized out ways. We're carrying uh, 12 Mark 82s piece, not snake eyes, we were a them, And uh, she leveled us off at 15.5, uh, which was the right hemispheric. We, we flew at odd or even plus five, depending on which direction you were heading. And uh, so we were at 15.5, and uh, I did a bomb check, just went under him and checked his bombs, and he had checked mine. And when we got back in formation, he kicked me out to root, which is more comfortable. both look out and see well i as soon as i went out rolled out and there was another 111 beak to beak with me and dick saw him about the same time i did we both made a hard break the guy was from my squadron and they'd put him at that altitude same controller that left us (laughs) go and he rolled and pulled to his left i rolled and pulled to my left And Dick rolled and pulled at the same time. And Dick said when he rolled out and saw me on his wing, he couldn't believe it. He just knew I was dead. That was probably the closest I ever came. But like I said, it was over before we got a chance to get scared. Uh, So we went on, dropped our bombs up there at uh, Fort Sill, came back, talked to the other guy. It's like, yes. I thought I'd had it and I said, yeah, I did too. But, uh, I don't know how close we came, but it was close. And Nick thought we were both dead. His, he said, I didn't, I don't know how you, I, I was just really shocked when I rolled out. You're on my wing. <laughs> mm-hmm. wow. So that was probably the closest in peacetime. A uh, couple times in England, I had close calls. Uh, I was up. Uh, Northern England. One time, coming up to do a ridge crossing, and a tornado came over, inverted over top of me. He was doing a ridge crossing the other way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we went, we but I don't know how close we were, but it was pretty dang close. Uh, I imagine he bunted a little bit. Uh, push forward on the stick to keep from instead of pulling down like he was normally do. Uh, I was kind of a sortie hog and I was trying to get some bombs off. And they told me one time that I could fly as long as I want, as long as I landed with 15,000 pounds of gas because I was supposed to take a incentive flight out. And you know what the incentive flight is? It's They would Basically, we would give somebody a flight for doing something for the some achievement. Uh, this guy actually had done some above and beyond work for the squadron, and he had he was one of the service organizations on base. He'd gotten some stuff done, so the ca- our our squadron commander got him a sending flights. Well, we went up, and we barely got three bombs off, and then we hit bingo up in Rose Hardy. You know where Rose Hardy is? Huh. You know where Tane Range is? Yeah, yeah. Well, Rose Hardy was right off the coast of Scotland there, north there on the the Firth right there where they... can't remember the name of it now. But just north of Lossie. It was, it was to the east of Lossie Mouth, but over the water there. And so we headed back south. Well, as we got over uh, Lucas, familiar with Lucas, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there was an AR track, air refueling track that went from Lucas out over uh, to the west. And their starting point was v- VOR, uh V-O-R, ta- Vortac, or TACAN. I Anyway, this tanker rolled out right in front of us. <laughs> so... I thought, well, I can get more gas. I can stay airborne longer. And so, I I told, I think we were on Scottish. He's Scottish. That Scottish mill. I said, Scottish. Is that uh, tanker got any extra gas? And he's headed for Building Hall to go home. And he comes back. Yeah, he's got gas. He says, he says, come on up. So we went up there and we got. Got a bunch of gas so now we had gas to find a range we always briefed all the ranges so i started calling all the ranges cowden had time in like two hours i said okay give it to me and whole beach wainfleet donanook none of them had any range time so i uh called eastern i said eastern you got any tankers on ar6 which is out over the water West in the North Sea. They refueled guys from England and they refueled guys from Germany. So the F-16s and stuff would come from Germany and refuel. And uh, they said, yeah, they got three tankers out there and all their receivers canceled. So they got to burn down fuel. So they said, come on out. So I went out and just kept topping off, off out there until my range time. At Cowden, went down to, range, went down to Cowden. And, of course, I was left the tanker a little early at night. So we were just kind of motored along at wings forward. and uh, This tornado came saw me. And we were a fair game out over there in the North Sea trading areas. And he came under me and rolled over the top of me. And that actually shook my airplane with afterburners. <laughs> that was kind of a heart-stopping moment.
0: That would have been an, F, an, F, an F-2 or an F-3.
1: Business yeah, business. probably out of Coningsby or something. Yeah. yeah, that was that was that was one time I had a little few seconds to get scared. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, we went and dropped our last nine bombs, and uh, I called, uh, squattered on HF high frequency radio, said, "Hey, we're going to be." Back, as soon as we drop our last bombs. And they're like, you're supposed to do this in funny flight. Get back here right now. I said, we're too heavy to land. <laughs> they go, what? We we're supposed to land with 20,000 pounds or less. I said, yeah, I've got 30,000, 31,000 pounds of gas. <laughs> <laughs> so we went and dropped our nine bombs and came back and I actually landed with 23,000. The structural limit on the airplane was 30, uh, with you could land with a full fuel load. So I, then I I think we got like 3.8 or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went and flew 2.3 with this incentive flight. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I got back to the squadron. The squadron commander was there and he says, I knew I sh- should, have, should not have told Brad Insley he could fly as long as he liked. <laughs> <laughs> we still talk about that. When we have reunions
0: but uh speaking of, of, of flight durations then um one of the things i understand from the, the adorado canyon the, the the libya raid in in april of 86 was engine oil limitation was, was probably something that you know i think they i think they as i understand it there were a bunch of squadrons that were flying really really long flights to see whether or not the airplane could stay up for 12 13 14 hours um yeah well that, that was a limitation
1: because you did use a little bit of oil as you flew. Uh, we had the A model when we went to Thailand, uh, they flew 14 hours, uh, the first 12 airplanes, so they could get to Thailand as quick as possible to drop the first sorties, set some record, but deployment to employment. And uh, so they took 12 airplanes to Oh, I'm going to say Guam, I think. And then they had another crew standing by and they just refueled them and launched them again. And they landed at Toxley, and they had crews there to launch them. And I think they only got like three airplanes airborne and uh, lost one of those. So it was costly. One of the problems was they didn't learn any lessons from the first deployment to the second deployment. Mm -hmm. You know, the Harvest Reaper birds. I talked to some of the people that were on Harvest Reaper and they are like, yeah, we knew all those things. We forgot them. But if we had read the Harvest Reaper reports, we probably would have remembered them. Like the fact that rain really attenuated the radar, that sort of thing.
0: Uh, You you mentioned… 14… Go ahead. No, that's what I interrupted you.
1: 14 hours, I don't think that was unreasonable. We flew 11.3 when we went from Hawaii to the Philippines. Uh, no one over there. But there was a little note in the dash one that said, you know, the real restriction is uh, oil usage. I don't recall any real problem with that. Though, so, you know, the biggest problem we had with oil was guys leaving the oil cap off the right engine. I remember right. Yeah, right engine, I'm pretty sure. Because it would siphon oil out did you get a load. So if the guy didn't secure the cap right, that's one thing you're supposed to check on each flight. If he didn't secure the cap right, it would siphon oil out of the right engine. The way the left engine tube was, it wouldn't siphon out of that side. But, uh... I went from uh, Upper Hayford to the States one time because that's what happened to the,
0: uh,
1: I was, they always took a spare, sent two airplanes to the States for maintenance, depot maintenance. And uh, normally you get two airborne. And then by the time you get to the tanker, uh, the spare would turn around and go home. Well, these two guys we're planning on this trip forever. And they called me the night before to, <laughs> to go because whoever was supposed to be this backup got sick or something. Anyway, I pulled up behind lead and I go, I did that. The three always did the check, make sure everybody was okay. I pulled up, pulled under lead and I go, lead, uh, you got something coming out of your right engine at this. You're screaming something. Of course, he didn't believe me. Because <laughs> so, he thought I was trying to go in this deployment. Or this high flight back to the States. Anyway, he says, two check me over. And two goes, yeah, he's <laughs> right. You're leaking something. And he goes, oh, yeah, my oil's, oil quantity is going down to the right end. And uh, I found out when he got back that the cap wasn't on. They had missed that on the pre-flight. And they, they took the cap off and they hung it over an oil line. And then they filled up the oil, then they put it back on and secured it. Well, I think he had left it off. I'm not positive about that. You could also put it on and not secure it, and it would pop out. Anyway, they went back and landed single engine, shut it down. When the oil gets to a certain point, you had to shut it down. Four quarts, I think. So anyway, they shut it down, and I went on to the States. (laughs)
0: What did, but, uh, what did, what did you ahead. think about um, the, the Libya raid, then, um, in terms of planning, in terms of execution, the performance of the aircraft, the performance of the air crews? What, what were your thoughts on like?
1: Uh You know, I've heard lots of things from guys that flew it. But uh, the feedback we got was the, the SAC guys were flying 480 true, because that's what was planned. And the winds were not like they're supposed to be, and they were they couldn't get them to go up. But I've heard other people say, no, that wasn't true. We just couldn't go that fast because the winds were way out of limits, oh, you know, a lot, a lot higher. So I I hate to point fingers one way or the other when I don't know the whole story. The initial point, reports we got was the SAC guys were planning for 480 and uh, uh, true, and it was – We needed 480 ground speed. And so they got to the target area, and the last guy couldn't even leave the tanker because he couldn't make his TOT. And the rest of them were running in at 600 knots. And they ended up getting really low on gas. Uh, One of them almost landed at Malta, except he wasn't sure he could make it because he just didn't know if he had enough gas to make the tanker. They lost one airplane, of course. I think we talked about that last time. But little I know there. And they sent one. One went into road to Spain. Uh, wheel well hot light. That was kind of serious. You get a fire in wheel well. The hot bleed air duct broke. And I guess they towed him into a hangar till after it was a fish... Just raid. All
0: the raid was over. Yeah, you you and I—we did talk about it, but it was after I'd I'd stopped the. um, You know, we'd stopped recording, and then, as as sometimes happens, we just carried on talking. Um, But but you did mention that there was a sort of, um, and you've just talked about the again about the attenuation of the radar in the rain. But I think you said that there was some kind of meteorological phenomenon off the coast, didn't you?
1: Yeah, it was a uh, clear air dense air mass that was unpredicted, that we'd never run into before. And apparently most of the jets were trying to climb over the air mass. And uh, so the guys were paddling it off and hand flying off the radar altimeter. And the guys that actually, once they passed that air mass, uh, that, re- that tried the, al- tried the radar. Alt- uh, excuse me. Tried the terrain-following radar again. Actually, found it worked once they were inside it. But it, it, it assumed that it was trying to climb over something. It, it, it assumed it was something out there they had to climb over. And uh, but once they got inside the air mass, they were okay. So some of the guys turned the TFs off and hand flew it in. Others uh, tried the TFRs again, and they worked. Uh, Fernando, we don't know what he was doing. Uh, a lot of speculation is maybe he was hand-flying because of that air mass. and was looking for the possible Crotel launch. It flew into the water, or maybe he got hit by a Crotel. Who knows? Crotel being a French missile, which we had really no defenses against. Uh, they had no programs for because it, it was a friendly SAM. And uh, it was kind of sad because the US had tested the SAM, found out newest capabilities, but didn't uh, pass that information on to anybody. Just sitting, sitting someplace probably at the Pentagon or something. So nobody really knew what a uh, crotel would do, could do. But what happened to Fernando, uh, Fernando Rebus and uh, Lawrence, we'll never really know. Did they fly in the water? Or did they get hit by a missile? We don't know. Uh, go ahead.
0: No, I was going to say. I mean, do, do you think that it was, you know, one one loss was was a good result? Um, in in terms I of think it,
1: we accomplished the mission. That's the main thing. Uh, it's sad. They learned a lot of the lessons. We learned. Uh, radar predictions are, I think, we talked about this last time. Radar predictions are iffy at best. Uh, they're better than nothing but. Uh, Some of the guys found out when they actually switched over to the target that they had gotten a bad update. Uh, They were using some pier on the coast, which radar predictions said it would show up great. Turned out it didn't show, but another pier that they didn't think would show, showed up. They were updating updating on it. And uh, so when they went to look for the target, they could find it in the camera, but it was crosshair if weren't anywhere close to it. So they had to readjust. Of course, they were using Paveway One bombs when they had Paveway Four, but nobody did, nobody in the wing had dropped a Paveway Four, so they were they decided to use Paveway Ones, which, in my opinion, was a mistake. But I that's Monday morning quarterbacking. Can you, can you Paveway? No, just describe.
0: Ahead. Just can you describe the differences?
1: Yeah, the Paveway 1 was the original laser guided bomb, and it was, uh, we used to call it wham bam, thank you, ma'am, guidance. In other words, if it detected it was low, it would put full deflection correction in. And then as it got to where it wanted to be, it would, you know, center the controls, but usually it would float through either up or down. Uh, the course it wanted to be on so th- then again it was a uh, uh it would full deflection correction trying to get back to where it wanted to be and you gotta remember these things are airfoils now so they can stall and uh basically it was it was an s it was a decreasing sine wave or s patterns to where at the end it was pretty stable mm. But uh, they could run out of energy trying to correct. Uh, The Paveway 4, on the other hand, was proportional guidance. It could detect how far it was off and make a slight correction to get back to where it wanted to be. Saving energy is important. Uh, We we worked with SEAL crews where they would designate the targets when I was in the D model and the E model. In other words, they would input a SEAL team someplace. They'd have the laser and you'd have their laser code. And if there were more than one code for multiple targets, each airplane would have a different code depending on which laser they're going to try and find. And we told them, okay, we're going to call off had some code word for off. We want you to hack hack your watch and wait so many seconds and then turn your laser on because you want the bombs to apex. You're tossing them. So you want them to apex and be on the way down when you turn the guidance on. Well, we got back after doing that with the SEAL team and and they go, okay, we understand what you mean now (laughs) because They had turned their laser on, right as we called off, and the bombs impacted right beside them. But not we didn't we weren't flying over them, but they were you know off to the side a little ways, close enough that it scared them. You know, they learned their lesson. <laughs> but what happened was the bombs basically ran out of energy trying to get to the target, and uh, they didn't have enough energy to fly there, so they stalled in beside them.
0: So, so why would they not, what, what, from a pilot's point of view or or a, a crew's point of view, what's the difference in dropping them? Then, why would they not just say, "Well, the guidance is different, but but the bomb is just released in the same way, presumably."
1: Well, uh, you're assuming that your your release point is good. You may not be getting, may not have accurate steering until you get. Airborne. I know the guys. Gaddafi's house. Those bombs ran out of energy. Uh, that's why only the last one made it to the house. Uh, so that you know, they just flat ran out of energy, and one bomb made it. If they'd been dropping Paveway way forward, probably would have had all tw- all twelve bombs in the compound there. Uh, so that's that's the big difference. You're just you got more energy to correct for any errors in the release point.
0: Did, did, did you, as a community, did you come out of the you know, Eldorado Canyon, you know, feeling that it was a, a good performance if that's not the wrong sort of characterization? Yeah.
1: Well, for a first strike without any radar film, I think they did pretty good. Uh, Remember the airplanes on where the guy dropped on the the cargo planes there on the airfield. Again, that was a bad radar update because the prediction that he was given didn't match what he actually saw. But when he turned turned the TV on, you could see all he had to do was drag the crosshairs over there, and of course, that's where good crew coordination comes in. You know, you can say, "Hey." I'm dragging the car, the everything to the right so the pilot can get a head start on turning the airplane there. Because hmm. the uh, autopilot may not catch a heap up with that, hmm. dragging the crosshairs crossed. And uh, I i know on my first check ride in the left seat, we were uh, going uh, up to Sailor Creek in Mountain Home, Idaho. Neither one of us had ever been there before, and the radar prediction was that we had they had three reflectors on a hill, and they said that the the two right ones would show up first, so aim on the left one of the two, and then when the other one blinks in, you, you'll be okay. Well, it turned out it was just the exact opposite; that the two on the left showed up, and he was on the left reflector. And uh, so when he, when when the third one picked, leaked in, he says, "I'm coming hard, right?" All, you know, all the steering. So I yanked and banked it to center the steering up, and the bomb came off right as right as we rolled wings level. We got like fifty footer or something like that, and uh, he had to get it within five hundred feet. So that was pretty good bombs. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we came. Then I came back around and dropped a visual bomb. It was I don't remember what I got. It seems like it was less than fifty feet, though—about twenty-five or maybe even a shack. And, uh, and then we got back. and, Of course, they said. They, first thing they said to me was, "We, I think you dropped that bomb first one, visually." I said, "No, I didn't." So they had, they wouldn't give us a score. They wouldn't give us a pass fail until they checked the radar film. And it happened just like he said. Drag it dragging across. Okay, you guys are good.
0: <laughs> wow. Was that typical for the F 111? Um, I suppose it depended on, on which variant, whether or not you were using a laser guided bomb or, or unguided bomb. But for unguided munitions, what, what circular error probable would you have expected?
1: But, uh, on a known target, of course, you, you get really good scores. I mean, we. We always bet on bombs at night, especially. Uh, and you better have it. You're not going to get us. You're not going to win anything with more than fifty feet for sure. Probably going to have to get twenty five footer or a shack in those days. An a model analog, uh, and we'd bet on time also. And you couldn't. You couldn't win the. You couldn't win either either one unless your other one was within, within criteria. In other words, you couldn't drop your bomb early before you got to the target, trying to win the timing yeah. and and have the bomb fall outside the circular, probably 500 feet for radar bombs. It was 500 feet for nuclear, all the nuclear events were 500 feet, I think. Trying to remember what the dive bomb, I think it was like 250 for the dive bomb. But, I mean, that last squadron I was in A models, if you didn't drop a shack, you weren't winning any money. Yeah. I mean, I dropped, I dropped five shacks. I only went out of six bombs one time, and I think I won one of them. I had to split the rest of them.
0: Oh, you serious? <laughs>
1: Uh, Those guys were, that was the best squadron I was ever in uh, as far as competitive people. You had like two or three guys that were going to lose every time, but the rest of it was a toss-up. You may not win much money because everybody's going to be sharing the pot.